The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Fold is brought to you by O-Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No mai hoki mai kia The Fold e mihi ne ko Duncan Grieve tokuingoa. I'm here on my own, monopodding, uh, as I do occasionally, uh, to talk about two things, the two huge media stories that have engulfed the world over the past week. The first of which was the Netflix result, which sent its share price cratering and a bit of a chill through the whole streaming universe and everything it touches, which is pretty much everything in the media when you really think about it. And the second of which is... Uh, Elon's acquisition of Twitter, uh, which is just an extraordinary story um, by by any means. And what I also want to do is basically this this genre where it's, it's just me running into the studio with a head full of thoughts uh, to talk about a, a breaking media story is something that I'm going to try and do a little bit more of uh, going forward. Um, just sort of 15, 20 minutes um, if I can stretch to that and uh, very much unfiltered raw thoughts. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just see how it goes. It won't be for everyone, but maybe it's for you. So I'll start off talking by uh, about Netflix. Um, I actually wrote a piece about this, um, which is on the spinoff right now. Um, so maybe check that out. But uh, I think it's it's really important. It's a, it's, it's a really it's a huge story to, to me. Uh, Netflix has been it's been it's it's a pretty extraordinary um, company. It, it has been a real pioneer, a very cerebral I, I, and I think significant uh, company in the technology space. It started out, you know, twenty odd years ago, uh, shipping DVDs to you via the mail and and it was you know its its chief competition at the time was was blockbuster and the the innovation it had was you know there were no late fees late fees were you know if you, these, these things if you're younger you'll be like what 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 were late fees and then you would go and re, you'd rent your five D, you know five, five videos or dvds for 10 bucks and then you'd forget to return them and when you next went in to try and get some more dvds on another uh, like hungover saturday or whatever You'd, you'd have like thirty or forty dollars of fines that you'd have to clear or sort of start paying down before you could get more. They were a real pain in the ass, but um, but that was why Blockbuster and all those other DVD um, rental chains were so profitable. And, and Netflix's innovation was keep them as long as you want, but we won't just send you any more until you've returned those others. So you'd have this list of titles that you wanted to watch, and um, and just send them back by mail when you wanted the next ones when you when you'd got through them. And that was actually a really, really, I think, very, very clever idea. It, it sort of took away the need for stores. It took away something that was a real annoyance for consumers. And the fact is that that was in the early 2000s and they could already see that there was uh, 
trouble coming. And rather than sort of do what most media companies do and aggressively defend their ground, they went ahead and kind of effectively disrupted themselves, almost to the point where they considered uh, breaking off their old company and, and started starting a fresh one. But they didn't do that. What they did was incubate and ultimately start a streaming service under the same name, you know, uh, Netflix, um, where they basically took advantage of a brief period of time when all of the TV networks, which were hugely profitable, um, often had deals through cable, so they had advertising income They and they also had income through the table, uh, cable companies. And Netflix comes up to them and goes, well, why don't you let us stream your shows online for a, a relatively small fee? And they're like, cool, just put that straight on my bottom line, thanks. And so they started out you know, streaming shows like Friends or The Office and, and um, developed quite a big uh, customer base that way. Then when the those TV companies started to realize that, uh, they, they, you know, sort of signaled to Netflix that uh, they would they would end that eventually. But that eventually took a long time. You know, as recently as a year or two ago, they were still selling some of their most high-profile properties to Netflix, even as they were building out their own streaming platforms. And... Um, Netflix, again, saw which way the wind was blowing and created House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, these two very um, successful and specific and high-profile series, and then they dropped them all at once, another innovation. The point being that this is a company that has always innovated within uh, television and within streaming, and that it, you know, in doing that, it basically created this aura around it that it, it was kind of immune to uh, the forces which bedeviled or, you know, kind of made the rest of the television um, media kind of a bit bit humdrum and, you know, a, a sort of a known quantity. And, and as a result, it became this incredibly beloved consumer brand because it, along with all of that, Netflix just worked, you know, in a place where you know, if you're someone with low data coverage or whatever device you're on, Netflix just works. It's They've always had this ability to attract the best in engineers. They wrote a whole book called No Rules Rules about their sort of you know strange, again, innovative workplace culture. Um, you know, they, they devolve power. They have a very flat hierarchical structure. They basically tried to have like a beginner's mindset to everything they did and Reed Hastings and Ted Serenados, the, the, you know, the two of the leads there, have, have really moved this whole industry forward and created a whole category to the point where they used to talk about, until very recently, about FANG stocks, F-A-A-N-G. And that stood for Facebook, which is now called Meta, Alphabet, Amazon, the N was Netflix and the, the G was Google. And, and you know, the, now things have changed. Like now Microsoft would naturally be among them. But and Apple is now valued at 30 times what Netflix is currently valued at. But that tells you what that, that basket of technology stocks, they were all considered innovators and they were all considered kind of, they were broadly similarly valuable. And, you know, the fact that Netflix, which had basically one single income stream, you know, uh, subscriptions to its service, was considered to, to sit alongside all of those giants really tells you something about how that company was perceived. And what's happened now? 
I mean, well, a lot of that value was predicated on the idea that it would grow forever. That it, and, and it did. For, for almost all of the last decade, every time would beat analysts' expectations that share price would grow. It you know, came out with hit after hit after hit. And you know, it, it talked about its biggest competitor being sleep. Uh, you know, and, and and its next biggest being Fortnite. Like it, it really went out of its way to position itself as not part of that scrum of, of other media companies, your your Disney's and your um, HBO's and so on, but to be a, a sort of a thing unto itself. And and it set its aspirations on five hundred million customers or a billion customers, you know, these, these just phenomenal numbers. And on some level, that, that really expensive stock price or the market capitalization was predicated on the idea that it would one day reach those numbers. And we've now had two consecutive quarters where it's had a really disappointing result. The most recent, it actually shrunk. And the idea of a company like Netflix being shrinking is basically what that says to to the market is like maybe it's at its ceiling maybe any growth from here on in will be very slow and incremental maybe as the streaming market grows you know we now have hbo max and disney plus and you know a, a revitalized hulu and you know there there are just more businesses more more uh, big streaming platforms launching all the time that, that the idea that Netflix will naturally achieve its targets is, is now open to question. And as a result, a company that was worth $300 billion uh, as recently in, in, as November is now worth less than $100 billion. And why, why is that significant? Like, you know, who cares about the price of it? Well, on some level, that really impacts Netflix's ability to, uh, to grow into the company that it um, desires, that it wants to be. Why is that? A lot of the employees are compensated in stock options, i.e. the ability to buy shares at a particular price. Now, if your stock options are at um, a particular level and the company's share price is trading way above that, you feel rich. When the share price craters and your stock options are above the price that the shares are trading at, those options are worthless. You know, you're, you're, you're never going to cash them in. Uh, the ability to buy a share at $120 when the shares are $100. And so all of these amazingly talented software engineers that Netflix has always been able to to guard and recruit, they're suddenly in play for all of the other places that they can ply their trade. So, you know, it's it's just a, a really big culture shock uh, to the industry. And so Netflix, which has always said we're different, you know, we're not going to have advertising like everyone else, suddenly said, we're probably going to have advertising um, in in the next couple of years, and you know it's it's also said like budgets might be cut, and the, there's a whole chill running through it. And the piece I wrote today is is about how that impacts um, New Zealand because I think it does have a, a a an impact on our local industry too. Um, I mean, it was a few years ago that a TVNZ exec dismissed Netflix as a as a fad, which I think has demonstrably been proven wrong. But the thing that um, that that is relevant to us is that I think a lot of online stuff has been, you know, there's an underlying assumption that it will grow forever. And what we've seen over the past year is, you know, Facebook 
has um, had its first down quarter too. And between the the slowing, you know, and and tapering off user growth plus uh, changes to Apple's privacy settings meant that Facebook suddenly went from being a you know a company that could do no wrong uh, financially at least um, to to one which is really struggling there. And I think what we're seeing is a I mean, obviously, Facebook has a whole bunch of other issues. You know, it, it's proven incapable of, of properly moderating its platforms, and um, the, just the general sentiment towards it has, has diminished a lot. And, and I think that naturally, the you know the social platforms, and I'll talk about that when we get to Twitter shortly. You know, there's a there's an issue I think in in terms of how do these products make you feel? Yes, you want to get on them; they're very Moorish, but how do they make you feel? But uh, getting back to New Zealand um, and, and TVNZ in particular, what, we, what the digital platforms sold to us was this, uh, this idea that they would grow forever and that as people came online, as people spent more and more time online, they would naturally spend more and more time on these platforms. But what we've seen in recent um, years, like post-pandemic really, is that our behaviours have got you know, less monolithic, you know. So TikTok as a phenomenon barely existed two, three years ago. Now it's it's an incredibly important part of um, behaviours, particularly uh, for, for Gen Z, and that's really challenging. You know, like there is the there is a, a lot that's very confronting about that as a platform. It's really hard for, uh, you know, the, the likes of... Um, you know, the, the big media companies to play on TikTok because it is the most explicitly creator-driven and creator-owned space uh, out of all of the the big social platforms. Uh, so we, we are currently merging RNZ and TVNZ to create a new public entity, the whole point of which is to go and reach that younger audience, the one that hasn't been well-served by RNZ and TVNZ, which are dominated still by... Uh, broadcast radio and linear television, respectively, in terms of the what they create and and the amount of um, time spent engaging with it by their audiences. If Netflix has reached a kind of ceiling, and if the streaming world is at capacity, and and if new audience behaviours are actually going to be a lot more complex and a lot more, you know. Discord and TikTok and, you know, video chatting and messaging and, you know, like a whole raft of behaviours than they are consuming big budget um, produced uh, audio and video products, That's that really will have profound implications over what should be made. And the skill sets of the TVNZ and RNZ uh, organizations is still around making audio and video. So how does that impact when you know young people in particular are really gravitating towards super niche interests created by individuals as opposed to institutions which are creating much broader um, products? I mean, the, the, I, I think one thing that we still don't acknowledge enough in this country is that when someone switches from an old media um, world to a, a newer media world. They go from consuming probably north of 60, 70% New Zealand created content to 
well, we'll never know the true number, but if I had to guess, I would I would be surprised if it was anywhere near even 20% New Zealand uh, content. You know, so if you go from listening to the radio, which, you know, the, the data is mixed, but supposedly about one in five songs on radio is from a New Zealand artist. On Spotify, we don't have the number, but I would be shocked if it was any, anywhere near that that number because we're able to, you know, it goes from a lean back experience where someone else decides what you watch to a lean forward experience where you decide or where a big playlist that you follow, which might be made anywhere in the world, is very unlikely to have any New Zealand content. You know, that's that's the globalised media marketplace that we live in. So for those, you know, the newly um, appointed establishment board for TVNZ and RNZ, creating a public entity to inform and entertain this vast, you know, 50% of this country that's under the age of 40, these underserved audiences, particular communities that haven't been well served by our public media historically, good luck. And this this Netflix story, it impacts them in a, in a really profound way too. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market. The opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Skinny are helping you show how smart you are with the 1Q Quiz. An all-new, super-challenging and super-quick daily quiz built by The Spin-Off. Every Monday, Skinny are giving you the chance to prove you're smart with the Skinny Extra Credit question. Get it right and you'll get the chance to score yourself some Skinny Extra mobile credit so you can text, call or even video call your group chat and gloat about how big your brain is. T's and C's apply. I also want to talk briefly about Elon Musk buying Twitter it's been just an amazing thing to watch, like the the sort of, you know, everything Elon Musk does has this very kind of cinematic uh, quality to it. And and he's always sort of, you know, the libertarian in him is always joyously breaking rules and sort of daring anyone to kind of stand in his way. So he was late in announcing that he'd taken the stake he initially called it a passive shareholding when, you know, a 10% stake in something as a passive shareholder, that's, you know, even for the richest man in the world, that's a that's a big call. Um, he's appointed to the board for a, a matter of hours and then um, announces a takeover bid with a with a weed reference in it. And the, the board tries, which, you know, famously doesn't use Twitter and doesn't own any Twitter shares, tries to put in place a poison pill to stop him acquiring it because he doesn't have financing in place. He has he gets financing in place. This, and then the whole thing just collapses and suddenly, you know, he's they basically accepted the takeover offer. Now, there's a lot of things that have to go under the bridge, but the hardest ones are done. And I'm sure many of our listeners, are, you know, if you're on Twitter, you probably have a complicated relationship with it. I was on it for 15 years. I recently left because 
I think I just sort of, I, I found that I wasn't my best self there and I didn't feel like my friends who were there, I didn't really recognize them when they were there and I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't love all that. But the other reason was like, you know, Twitter has never been a great driver of traffic to any media company. That's the, our sort of stated reason for being there is we, we sort of build these brands and we can distribute our work as journalists. You know, that's for journalists. Everyone has their own reasons. But I used to joke about it just felt weird doing volunteer work for a billionaire, you know, and that, that's basically what you're doing when, when you're on Twitter. If you frame it a particular way, is like you're creating content for – you know, at the time it was Jack Dorsey. Um, now it's the world's richest man and someone who basically hates you, uh, you know, for a lot of people who are on Twitter who are, you know, very passionate about particular causes. Elon Musk isn't passionate about those causes. And so so I think there's a real kind of quandary about uh, how that's going to, to play out. The other thing is I, I don't know that it won't be – in the longer term, good for the service. You know, Twitter famously doesn't ship product very well. Uh, it, it hasn't grown as a business. It basically, when when he announced his takeover bid, it was at basically the same price it had listed at nearly a decade earlier when every other big technology or social um, stock had grown massively. So, yeah, what we have with with Twitter is a, is a company that is hugely influential that um, politicians and identities uh, from, from all kinds of communities are very prominent on, but that, you know, to my mind, the algorithm of Twitter is as consequential as the algorithm of Facebook in terms of pushing society to its extremes. And that's like, I don't think it's all that complicated. Like, there isn't any incentive. There's no butter that says, "I re- I basically agree with this take." You know, it's it's a, it, there. There is. There's no incentive to create that. The algorithm isn't going to surface a tweet where people just sort of nod um, without a huge amount of passion at it. It it drives retweets and faves. Like it, it wants you to to um, to create content which generates reactions, just as Facebook does, and. And I think that that for people who are extremely online, who are extremely on Twitter, particularly journalists and, and politicians, it kind of pushes you towards those fringes and it sort of makes you feel like to participate in this conversation, you have to find a little toehold on the edge to, to sort of uh, make headway or, or, or be seen. And, you know, I don't think that's been good for society. I don't think it's been good for Twitter as a product. There was a, a perspective I read from Ben Thompson who runs the Stratechery newsletter, which I thought was really interesting about you know, Twitter. One of Twitter's many innovations in its early days was this open a, uh, API where any number of people could plug into that and give, give you a different version of Twitter, which is where sort of TweetDeck and Twitterific and a lot of um, apps, which uh, might not even be with us, a lot of them, um, you know, they, they were sort of built off and around that at the time. And the business model of Twitter changed to be all about advertising, therefore it cut access uh, off to, to those people. And one of the things that Ben Thompson was suggested was if they could just, you know, if you could provide a different version of Twitter that might have no advertising, might put the feed into 
whether it's strictly chronological, it might filter out particular things, and you paid for access to that, and users could either could could buy access to it themselves, you know, create it as a subscription product, as Netflix previously knew. Uh, subscription products get very get very high valuations. You know, there, there is a world where Elon Musk, who, whatever you think of him, is a genius of product and a guy who knows how to do very difficult things. A lot of his public statements around Twitter have been pretty asinine and you know some, somewhat scary, but ultimately $45 billion, you don't want to just set it on fire and pour it into the ground. I think the chance of him doing something different that isn't about advertising and you know, he said explicitly he wants to piss off the 10% of users on the, on the left and the right. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, um, even if, uh, you know, he's a, he's a scary individual and most of what he said on a lot, you know, about this and about a whole bunch of other things is kind of scary. I think that uh, there's a chance that this comes out to the good. Uh, so that's my monopod. Uh, I, like I said, I'm going to try and do them uh, periodically when big news strikes. Uh, I want to thank Tahe Butler for gamely stepping into the studio and putting this out and, and Jane Yee for uh, allowing me to do it and, and you particularly for listening. If you like The Fold, please give it a rate on Apple or Spotify. Cheers. The Fold is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network together with Vodafone. It was hosted by Duncan Greve. Produced by T.I. Hair Butler, with production management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. To find out how Vodafone can help you reach your personal and business potential, visit vodafone.co.nz. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.